Today we um, begin our first day of Advent. I know we come out of Thanksgiving and we come out of Halloween right into Thanksgiving. We come, some of y'all come right out of Halloween right into Christmas. I don't know, but, but, uh, but if you didn't, then you come right out of Thanksgiving right into Christmas. And um, you know, the, the season of Advent um, is one that we've been celebrating for a long time and churches long before us have been celebrating this for many years. And the word Advent actually means coming or arrival. And so... Um, the season of Advent was a time period that the church set aside that they had a, a um, the four Sundays before Christmas were going to be the Sundays that they designated to make sure that we were focusing on preparing for the coming or the arrival of Jesus um, as we're waiting on Him to come again or preparing to celebrate His first coming and a better understanding of what that means. And, and everything that we do toward Advent, whether it's the songs that we sing, the Scripture that we read, no matter what it is, we try to focus it toward that point. Uh, one of the things we do is the Scripture reading and the candle lighting, which we're fixing to do here in just a moment. But um, we were talking this morning about... Um, the way the sun rises and the sun sets in Sunday school. And they were bringing up what, uh, what we know as the, the winter solstice. I'm sure most of you have probably heard of that before. But basically, somewhere around December the 20th through the 25th, somewhere in that time period is when the, the darkest day of the year, or the shortest day of the year, if you will, that's when the winter solstice actually takes place. From this point up to then, the days just keep getting a little darker and a little darker. Has anybody noticed that the sun sets so fast? You think it's 8 o'clock at night, it's time for bed, and it's only 5 o'clock, right? And so that's the way the days are up to this point. The days just keep getting darker and darker. And back in, in the Roman days and back in the days of the death of Jesus, they actually celebrated the winter solstice, and the Romans and the Greeks actually worshipped a god called Saturn. And this God was a God that they believed had control over agriculture and time. And so they, they had a festival during this time period that celebrated this. Christians saw it as an opportunity that because it represented the days getting darker and darker, and then when the winter solstice comes, guess what happens? The days start getting lighter and lighter until by the time you get to June, they say there is some three hours difference in the amount of daylight that you have in June than there is in December. Now, a lot of people may not have realized that, but it's the truth. Go and look at your apps, that weather apps and things, and see what time the sun rises and sets in December versus what time the sun rises and sets in June. Big difference in the amount of daylight that you have. And what a more appropriate time to celebrate the birth of Christ or the light of the world coming into darkness than on the winter solstice, on the day that, that the light begins to grow more and more. And so that is one of the reasons why we have developed the tradition as Christians today to celebrate the birth of Christ on December 25th. It, it, it wasn't because they actually believed Jesus was born on December 25th, but it was because of what the culture they were in was doing and the opportunity they saw to be able to, um, to represent the light of the world coming in. 
The season of Advent is this time period where we're sitting here watching the days getting darker and darker and darker. And we light a candle each week in preparation of more light coming into the world until finally the day comes when the birth of Christ happens and the light of the world is here. And so everything we do in Advent is just in the hopes that it prepares you and it builds an anticipation in what we're getting ready to celebrate come December the 25th. And so this morning, I'm going to have Ms. Montana to come, if she will. And Ms. Montana is going to read to you Psalm chapter 2. You're too short. We'll take care of that. Ms. Montana is going to read Psalm chapter 2, and, um, and then we will get into our message. Why do the nations rage and people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision and He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice in trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. All right. And if you would light us a purple candle over there, Miss Montana. <laughs> Good job, Montana. You didn't burn nothing down. But that's what that represents. It's just simply a, a symbol that we use to represent that what we're waiting on is that even though we still live in dark days, even though there is darkness in the world all around us, what we celebrate when we get to December 25th is that there is light that has come into the world. And this light has shown us the way. And now we are walking that way as we prepare for Him to come again. And that's what we are building anticipation for. Also, if you have small children, um, let me see if I can find that. I, I, we take our child through a book each year starting tonight. There's 25 lessons in this book. It's called the Advent Storybook. 25 Bible stories showing why Jesus came. And it's by Laura Ritchie. So if you want to see that or you ain't got something to write with and you want me to know or you want to know what that is, it's a beautiful book that just takes you from the Old Testament all the way through the birth of Christ and I yeah, I think it ends on the birth of Christ. And you get it on Amazon for about 9 bucks. Um even if you do, even if you ordered it today, a couple days it'll be here. You have to do 3 in 1 night. They're little short stories, but it's a beautiful way for you to just Tell your children the story of redemption all the way up to the birth of Christ. And it's another tool and a resource for you to be able to, um, to build this anticipation as a family and to put the focus of Christmas on what it is meant to be. 
And so it's called The Advent Storybook, 25 Bible Stories Showing Why Jesus Came by Laura Ritchie. And so if you want that afterwards, just let me know and I will, I will give that to you or send you a link for it, whichever one helps you the most. So as you saw, we're going to be in Psalm chapter 2 this morning. However, there is something that I found out that, that, that was very interesting to me as I studied this. It is actually believed that Psalm 1 and 2 were meant to be read as a single unit. They were not necessarily meant to be separated. Now in Acts chapter 13 verse 33, there's a scripture that says, this Jesus has fulfilled to, this He has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus as also it is written in the second Psalm. And so here Peter quotes the second Psalm. Now here's something interesting. In many of the oldest Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, this quote actually says, as also it is written in the first psalm. And so there are many Greek original transcripts that actually quote this as coming from Psalm 1. Now that's just one example of, of why they believe these two psalms were at one time connected and they were meant to be read as a single unit. Another reason behind it is the opening statement of Psalm chapter 1 says, Blessed is the man. And the closing statement of Psalm chapter 2 at the very end of it, Blessed are all. So it starts out with blessed is this man, and then Psalm 2 ends with blessed are all. And we're going to understand why that's important here in just a minute. Um, as we go through it. Other evidences would be the fact that there are so many similarities in words and themes, such as in uh, chapter 1 and verse 6, it says that the way of the wicked will perish. It also says the Lord knows the way of the righteous. And then in chapter 2 verse 12, He talks about, "...kiss the Son lest He be angry, and you perish in the way." And so there is the exact same wording used in this place. Um, Also in um, chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 where he talks about what this blessed man is going to do. Um, And we'll look at that in a little while. Is also what the king that God has set on his holy hill is supposed to do. And so there are many similarities between these two that that calls people to believe that they should be read as a single unit. So in light of that, I want to examine them very closely this way, and I'm just going to walk you through uh, Psalm chapter 1 real quick, just to build a quick outline, get out of it, and go right to Psalm 2, okay? So look at Psalm 1 with me for just a minute. The first thing we notice is that he says, "...blessed is the man." So the first thing about this is he wants us to understand where a man becomes blessed. Where you could translate this, and some of your versions probably do translate it this way, happy is the man. This comes from a word that the root of it means to be genuinely happy. To be someone that is has a, a deep-seated joy. Someone that is just... Um, super naturally satisfied with everything in life. Even when darkness is all around them, even when trials are there, no matter what comes up in this person's life, they are content, satisfied, 
and they are happy no matter what happens. And ain't, wouldn't that be a blessing to be able to experience that in its fullness? Alright? So the first thing he says is that blessed is the man. That So true happiness is the man. And there are, next thing we see, there are three things that a blessed and a happy man does not do. I want you to see the three things that a truly happy person does not do. The first thing, he does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. So he does not allow the, the counsel of the world and the counsel of, of wickedness in the world to determine the steps that he takes. The next thing he does not do, he does not stand in the way of sinners. And so next we see that he does not just, um, he does not just stand in the way that, that sin would, uh, would tempt him to stand. So I want you to notice the progression here. Once you notice, he starts out, he says, the man don't walk. Alright, he's walking first. It starts out, he's walking in counsel of the wicked. But then, next thing, he stands in the way of sinners. In the past. So he's went from walking to standing. He's went from taking counsel to actually being in the way of sin. And then finally, we move to the worst part. He's no longer walking, he's no longer standing, but what's he doing next? So the blessed man, the truly happy man, does not sit in the seat of scoffers. Now if you were to go, and I don't want you to go there, but just for reference, if you were to go to uh, Proverbs, I think it is, if I can find that. can't remember exactly where it is. Um, it's Proverbs 19, I think. Somewhere right in there. But if you were to go there, it talks about the scoffer. Alright? And it talks about the, the scoffer being the worst of the worst sinners. That literally, he won't listen to his parents. He won't receive any instruction. He just lets his heart have his way and does anything that he wants to do. And so what you have here is you go from walking in counsel of wickedness to standing in the way of sinfulness to sitting, now you have planted yourself in the middle of being a scoffer. Somebody who says, God, I don't want nothing to do with you. I don't want any, I don't want your direction, your guidance. Stay out of my life. I can do what I want to do. You won't take counsel from any good source whatsoever. And this is the person that he contrasts with the blessed man. All right? And so that's the three things that he doesn't do if he truly wants to be happy. If he wants to find true happiness. Now let's think about it for a minute. Where do we typically find our true happiness today? Well, we find it in things, right? Black Friday. Nothing like shopping, is it? And then when you're in there, you're buying for everybody else, but you can't help but see those sales and think, man, I could use that toolbox right there myself. I mean, you, 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 shopping things. Some people find it in cars, motorcycles, or, or houses, or horses, or, or, or cows, or we find it in all kinds of things in this creation. Some people we find our happiness in, um, and one of the places you'll tell where you find your happiness is just take a look at where your checkbook is. That'll tell you where you find a lot of your happiness. Just take a look at where your time is spent. That'll tell you where you find your happiness. And I'm not saying that it's anything wrong with having 
these things I'm talking about. But one of the things that you'll notice, um, take a look at your phone sometime and look at the apps and see how much time you spend on things. Ethan was so excited Wednesday night, he tickled me. Ethan come up to me and he said, come here, i got to show you something. i got to show you something. We went out to his truck and he showed me his game that he plays. And he plays this game. I don't remember, Fortnite I think maybe? I think it was. And um, he said, I want you to look at this number right here. And I said, all right, what is that number telling me? He said, that's how, long, that's how many hours I've played on it. And it was like, how many hours was it? 801 hours is what he has spent on, on, that, on that game. And then he got me thinking about something. How many of us, if we would take our phones and take the app and look up how much time you spent on Facebook or how much time you spent on Instagram? And we figure out that we're searching for satisfaction and happiness all over the place and so many different things. And it may bring a temporary satisfaction, but it'll also depress you after a while. The truth of the matter is that's about all social media does for people anymore is you get on there looking for something and then you get in there and you say, well, this person's husband's better than mine. <laughs> and, um, and then this person's wife is, does everything for them. They cook, they clean, they, uh, or you get on there and, and, um, and you say, well, this church, um, had this many this morning and this church baptized this one this morning. And you look at your church and go, what have we done? And next thing you know, you're just all down in the dumps and you're depressed because you were trying to find your happiness in a place that you will never find true happiness. You know, the average church time in America is 90 minutes a week. Average church time in America is 90 minutes a week. Do you know what that adds up to in a, in, in a year? How much time you actually spend in church over a year's time? This will blow your mind. Four days. Four 24-hour days out of 365, that's how many you spend in church. If you spend 90 minutes a week in church, which most don't, right? Yet, do you know what the average watch time for Netflix is? Two hours per day. That equates up to 25 days a year. And yet we look at each other and say, I was just too busy to come to church. Now take Netflix and add Facebook, Instagram, um, Fortnite, um, um, horses, cars, work. Add everything else in the world to that. And guess what you have? you have a very bad off-balance, don't you? Something's not right. And the fact of the matter is, we find out that we're trying to find our happiness in doing things that were never meant to bring us happiness, and they can't bring us happiness because they are temporary. And so the first thing you see there, let me get back to this. There were three things that he didn't do, and here's the, here's the summary of that. He doesn't go from bad to worse in sin. That's the point. He doesn't go from bad to worse. Instead, you're going to see he goes from worse to better. All right? But keep going with me in verse 2. But here's two things that he does do, the happy man. He finds his delight, his satisfaction in the law of the Lord. Now listen to me. I'm not saying here that he just read his Bible all the time because here's something you need to understand. People back in this day didn't have a copy of the Bible in their house. 
So I don't want you to take this in that context and think this meant that he found his delight in just sitting down and reading the Bible all the time. No, it meant that his delight was found in not walking in sinful ways, but instead in walking and following and delighting and being right with God and being obedient to Him. That's where his delight come from. That's where his happiness come from. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He dwells on it. He thinks about it. In this day and time, they memorized big parts of the Scripture because they couldn't take it home with them. And so they memorized it and they dwelt on it and they meditated on it and they found happiness in this. And then the next thing, i got to go quicker in uh, verse 3. The next thing we see is the picture of the blessed man. Here's the picture. He is like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does, he prospers. He just keeps getting better and better and better in all that He does. And next we have a picture of the wicked in verse 4. But the wicked are not so. But instead, instead of being like a tree that's planted and producing fruit, good fruit, by the streams, growing and, and having life, instead of that, the wicked are like the chaff. And the chaff is that little piece of shell, worthless piece of shell around a grain of wheat that basically people beat and they threw it up in the air so the wind would just blow away this chaff, never to be seen from again. It was useless and it was uh, just a waste piece. And the wicked are going to be like the chaff that the wind drives away. Verse 5, we see... I'm sorry, yeah, verse 5, we see the end of the wicked. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. In other words, they're not going to continue in their wickedness. They're not going to keep standing. There is coming a day of judgment. They will not continue in this rebellion. And the sinners will not continue to stand in the congregation of the righteous. And then verse 6, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So what do we learn from this? Because it's not where I want to spend my time. What do I learn? There's only two kinds of people, right? Righteous and wicked. That's it. Here's my question. Which one are you? There's only one answer. You are the wicked. I am the wicked. We are not the blessed man of Psalm chapter 1. How do I know that? Psalm 2 tells me. Look what he says next in Psalm 2 verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and His anointed saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And so here's the first thing you see whenever He lays out that the only way to be truly happy and joyful in life is you're going to have to be that man who just loves the law of God and delights in it and you are obedient to God and you don't walk in the way of sinners. Well, there's a problem with that, ain't it? Because that's not me. I'm not that guy. (laughs) I'm the wicked guy. That's who I am. And according to Psalm 1, my end is not good. And so he says here in the first part that the problem is all of the people are in rebellion against God. Notice he starts out in verse 1 talking about the nations. Who's included in the nations? The nations rage and the people's plot in vain. 
and the kings of the earth. Now it moves on to the leaders even. The kings of the earth set themselves together with the rulers and they take counsel together. And they do it against the Lord and against His anointed. In other words, against God the Father and against God the Son. And here's what we learn from that. All humanity is plotting to overthrow God's authority. Starts with you and I first, and it goes all the way up to kings and rulers. This was actually fulfilled in Acts chapter 4, verse 23 through 28. Look at what this says very quickly. When Peter and John were released from prison, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And basically they told them, you can't preach in the name of Jesus anymore. And then they looked back at them and they said, are we to obey men or are we to obey God? I think we'll obey God. But they went back and reported it. And when they heard it, they lifted their voice together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your holy servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, whom you anointed, both Herod, he was the king of the Jews, Pontius Pilate, he was the governor for Rome, along with all the nations, the Gentiles, and even the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Verse 20. So anyway, here's the point. It was fulfilled when we see it in Christ, when all the nations and the rulers gathered together against God and His anointed. But the truth of the matter is this. We have always rebelled against God and His authority. We rebel against authority, period. The truth of the matter is, you let somebody come and tell you, you can't do something, guess what you want to do? You want to know why the majority of the nation... Listen, the majority of the nation right now really... are not majority, but the majority of the unvaccinated people today are not really anti-vaccine. Not the majority of them. Now some of them really are, I'm not saying that. But the majority of them are not. You want to know why? Because you're sitting here trying to tell me that I am going to do this. I'm one of those guys. I ain't got nothing against a vaccine. But don't come to me telling me you're going to do this or I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this because you know what that does to me? Let's go, baby! And so, the, you know, the, again, we hate authority. We do. And so I really believe that what we see even in today... Think about the Jews for just a minute. How many times have we seen the Jews, the people of God, and the world come against them and try to destroy them over and over again because of what they stood for, because of the laws that they followed? The Christians, you know how many times Rome tried to destroy the Christian faith, fed them to the the lions and hung them upside down, burned them at the stake? Humanity plots against God Almighty in everything that they do. And we are the wicked people. Now the truth of the matter is this. You may not rebel against every authority, but there is authority somewhere that you rebel against. Alright? You want to know why the, um, 
The world right now in our nation hates the Christian faith so much because you stand against LGBTQ. And they don't like that. You, you stand against abortion. And it's my body, my choice. Right? And so we have this struggle with authority that causes us to be wicked in this world. And notice what we say in verse 3. Let us burst their bonds apart, cast away their cords from us. You cannot tell me what to do. I am the God of my own life. And that's okay in some areas, but not when it comes to God and His ways. And that is the problem with the world. We do not want God. We do not want His ways. We want to burst their bonds apart for us. Notice first of all, it's a feudal rebellion. It's in vain in verse 1. Notice it's a united rebellion. It's nations, kings, and rulers. And they say in verse 3, let us. They all, and we all say it. We're all this wicked person. And then notice in verses 4 through 9, we have God's response. First off, He who... what? Sits. <laughs> you know what God's response to your rebellion is? You're shaking your fist at Him. You can't tell me what to do. You know what God's response to that is? He don't even stand up. He sits in heaven and He laughs. Anybody in here ever watched your toddler not get their way? What's that toddler do? Get down in the floor and kick and scream, and I, no, you didn't get my way. And the, at first, what do you do? You laugh. At first, you just sit there and you laugh because it's so funny. I mean, listen, I'm sorry you're not okay, but this is the way it is. At first, you laugh. But then, eventually, the laughing comes to a stop and it's time for you to speak. I see my son in the floor doing that. I laugh at first. If it goes on very long, guess what I'm fixing to do? And I let him know, time for you to get up. And when I speak, he understands I mean business. And he hears my wrath and he hears my fury. And watch what happens next. So first off, God laughs. And the next thing, the Lord holds them in derision. He mocks. And then verse 5, then he will what? Speak to them in what? His wrath. And He will terrify them. The hopes that he, he wants to put the fear of God in you. That if you continue in this way, the only hope you have is perishing. That's it. Blown away like the chaff of the wind. And so He says here, He speaks to them in His wrath. He gives them a warning is the next thing that He does. And He puts the fear of God. And you remember what the proverb said? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And then verse 6, He tells us His plan. Here's the plan that He tells us in verses 6 through 9. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. In other words, I will establish my king. <laughs> you can go ahead and rebel all you want to, but I'm going to set a king down. And he is going to be king on Zion, my holy hill. Verse 7, I will tell of the decree. Here's the decree about this king. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Who's the king? He's the son of God. 
He is the only begotten Son of God. What you see here is the incarnation where God Almighty becomes man in the flesh. Verse 8. Next we see, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Ask of me and I'll give this whole rebellious thing to you. And you'll rule over it. And here's what you'll do with it in verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So here's the plan. I'm going to establish my king. This king is going to be my son. I'm going to give him the earth and all the rebels that are in it. And he is going to rid this place of all the wickedness and judgment when he dashes it to pieces with a rod of iron. And just a couple of scriptures where that's fulfilled at. Revelation chapter 12 verse 5. <coughs> Excuse me. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 5, she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to His throne. Talking about she gave birth to it, He went to heaven, and then soon He's coming back to actually break it with a rod of iron. Now go to Revelation 19, verse 15 and 16. From His mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and He will rule them with a rod of iron, and He will tread the winepress of the what? Fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. So again, we see that Everybody knew that this psalm was written about Jesus coming to be king, to shut the rebellion down, and to destroy all the wickedness. And then finally, in verse 10, we have God's direction to people like you and me. Because we got a problem, don't we? God is angry. We are wicked. And the only way to be happy and to be blessed is to be true to God. And that's not us. So, here's what we see in God's direction to us in verse 10. The first thing, Now therefore, O kings, what? Don't be a fool. Don't be a fool. Don't be like this toddler kicking on the ground. You know what I can do to that toddler if he sits there and kicks long enough? I'll jerk him up. <laughs> Y'all got anybody else in here know what I'm talking about? I'll jerk his butt up in a minute. Don't be a fool. And if you think that's what I'll do to a toddler, what in the world do you think God will do to you? Be wise. And then next, what's the second thing we do? Be warned. Be warned. He's giving you warning. Listen, when God raises His voice to you, He ain't coming right away to jerk you up. When I raise my voice to my son, I ain't coming right away to jerk him up. I'm letting him know, if you don't get your butt up and get yourself turned around, I'm coming. I'm coming. And it ain't going to be pretty. So be warned. And then notice in verse 12. I want to go to this one next before I go to verse 11. Verse 12, kiss the son. In this day and time, a kiss was a sign of homage. It was a public display of respect or honor toward someone. Listen to this. It was a public display of respect or honor. So when the king come up, the subject would take his hand and he would kiss the ring or he would kiss the hand. And it was the public display that recognized 
You are the authority. I am the subject. And no matter where that was, whether it was a king or not, uh, you remember when Judas came and he betrayed Jesus. What did he betray him with? A kiss. It was a public display of honor and affection, especially from a pupil to his teacher. It was a kiss. And so here in this day, kissing was offered so that it was a public statement to say, you are the authority, I surrender and submit to you. And here's what he says, be wise and be warned and kiss the Son. Make your public display. You know how we do that? Romans 10 puts it like this. If you confess with your mouth, what? That Jesus is Lord. It is that public display that says, Lord Jesus, I offer you my kiss to say, I surrender my rebellion, I submit to you. I kiss the Son. And then notice what he says in verse 11. What else do we do? Serve the Lord. We serve Him. We walk as He walked in 1 John chapter 2, verse 6. Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. You want to know how you become the blessed man of Psalm 1? By walking like the blessed man of Psalm 1. Do you know who the blessed man of Psalm 1 is yet? He is the one who delights in the law of God. He is the one who meditates in His law day and night. He is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. He is the only one that does that. We are the Psalm 2 man. That's who we are. And so we have an obligation to kiss the Son and serve Him. And here's the question that I would ask you this morning. Are you actively fighting your rebellious flesh? The question as to whether or not you are abiding in the blessed man and whether or not you are going to find true happiness. The question is, are you walking as He walked? Are you following Him? Are you fighting your fleshly rebellion right now? Let me tell you something. I know I'm wicked and I hate my wickedness. And one thing I do is when I recognize it and I see it, I want to put it to death. I want to fight it. The way you know whether or not you've been born again and whether or not you are abiding in Him is do you see that active fight in sin of sin in your life? Have you made your public display to the, to the world to say, I kiss the Son. I surrender to Him. He is Lord, not me. He is the King that God has set on His holy hill. And then notice what He says next in verse 11. What's the next thing we do? Rejoice. Rejoice in Him. If you've heard the warning that you're a rebel, just think about the layout of this psalm. If you've heard the warning that you're a rebel, if you know that you're going to perish in judgment, if something don't happen, but yet He offers you a way out through the Son. And then you've kissed the Son. You've proclaimed that He is Lord. And you're actively serving Him. Then you should be able to rejoice 
because you know that you're abiding in Him, even though I'm still the wicked man of Psalm 1. I know that I'm abiding in Him, not because I get it right, not because I'm perfect, but because I'm following the one who did get it perfect and who did get it right. And then finally, this is the closing. Verse 12 at the end. Notice how he ends here. It started out in chapter 1, the only way to be blessed is to don't do this and do this, right? We already saw, we failed that. But notice how he ends in chapter 2. Everybody who does this finds true happiness. Everybody who does this finds true blessing. Your whole world can fall apart, but there can still be joy. Darkness can be all around you, but there will still be light. And here is the way that you find true happiness. Blessed are who? All. Not righteous or wicked. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. The only way for a sinner like you to find true happiness is to heed the warning of God that you are indeed a rebel against the authority of God. Be warned. Be wise. Kiss the Son. Profess Him as Lord. God, You are Lord and I'm sorry that I don't like Your ways. You know, one of the greatest evidences of our rebellion in today's world is sexual immorality. Sexual immorality. We look at things like premarital sex or even adultery or even homosexuality and we look at those and say, "Ah, oh, what's the big deal? Love is love. Just, just love everybody. Just let everybody... Who are you to judge? Right? That is one of the biggest evidences of the rebellion against the authority of God. And we need to recognize today that if we don't surrender our rebellion and kiss the Son, the King that He is sent and is going to judge the world one day, if we don't surrender that rebellion and kiss the Son and serve Him and rejoice in Him, you will not be blessed. You will not find happiness. And you will spend eternity in sadness and torment is what you will find. And so my question to you is, this, is just very simple. Starting this Advent season, have you kissed the Son? Have you humbled yourself before Him to do as Romans 10 says? Did I give you that Scripture, Nathan? Uh, Romans chapter 10, verse 9, I think, somewhere around in there. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be what? Saved. You have surrendered your rebellion, you have kissed the Son, and you have chosen to serve and follow Him. But if you refuse to do that, and you will not acknowledge Him as Lord and King, then you're a fool. And you will perish and be blown away like the wind, like the chaff in the wind. My offer to you this morning is, Today is the day of true salvation. 
if you do not see the active fight in your life of fighting ongoing sin, then one of two things is going on. You're still a rebel or you need to repent and you need to turn back to Him and get back in the fight. But one of those two things is true for you. But whatever the case may be, I pray that you heed His warning this morning, you listen to Him, and you respond accordingly. Whatever you need, we're here to help you with it. However you need help.